what do people want? They want to pick out a house that they want so they can live close to their parents or school or something, right? They want a backyard. They want to like pick out a house, right? They want stability. So they want to know that they can stay in that house for an extended period of time. They want clarity on payments and they want to be able to save in the equity on the home. Those are kind of the characteristics. And I thought, okay, I can do that. I can create those characteristics and not have to take out a mortgage. So I actually think memo writing is really important for memorializing decisions, one, but to pushing you to actually like fully think through it and understand even those little bits that are hard to understand. So we pulled that, I think, from Amazon. My view is I would rather work with fewer, better people than more average people. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode, I sit down with Adina Hafez, CEO and co-founder of DB Homes, one of the most innovative prop tech companies in the U.S. that helps renters transition into homeowners with a rent-to-own model. They are backed by great investors, including Andreessen Horowitz, GGV Capital, GIC, Tiger Global, Caffeinated Capital, and Max Levchin. We discuss what's going on in the U.S. commercial and residential real estate markets. Adina provides a deep dive of the top state of the market, how DV's rent-to-own model is a win-win for consumers, giving them the flexibility to be homeowners without necessarily having a mortgage, leadership and productivity lessons after six years in the CEO role, struggles from their early fundraising journey, building company culture, and a lot more. Adina, welcome to Fintech Leaders. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me here. I appreciate it. Excited to chat with you about Divi and real estate and all those things. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm also very excited. And I know you're joining all the way from Oakland, California. So we have a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about DV. We're going to talk about you, what you've learned. But how about we start, you know, with something that it is in a lot of people's minds. And that is, what is going on in real estate? And not even talking about prop tech, but Let's talk about like, what are you seeing right now in real estate? I know you focus on residential, right? But there's also obviously commercial and other categories. But, you know, talk about today, what's going on in the market? Let's break it down a little bit. I think for me, my expertise is in the residential real estate market. But obviously, I think that there's a lot happening right now in commercial real estate that is equally, if not more, interesting And so let's start with commercial real estate. I'll go quickly over that. And then we'll dive into single family, what we're seeing there. And that'll lead us into more around Divi and all the things that we do there. So most folks have been hearing about commercial real estate and the way in which they have been hearing about it has been probably sensational media headlines around 
you know, commercial real estate's falling apart. There's there's a lot of failures in terms of payments and delinquencies and all sorts of stuff. And and that has been sort of the, the media focus. So let's pull back to what's actually happening. There's been this sort of macro trend, which is remote working. So during COVID, people went into remote working. Companies tended to use less office space, so downgrading in terms of size of office. And, and then some people just gave up their office altogether. And so the result of this is that we're seeing within core markets, so tier one, tier two markets, we're seeing the higher vacancy rates we've seen in a really long time. I think if you look at overall vacancy rates for the office sector, so within commercial real estate, there's industrial, there's apartment, there's office, there's retail, there's a lot of sectors. I think the key one that is driving concern is office, which is the sub-segment of all of commercial real estate. And if you look at within office, what we're seeing is roughly, call it, depends on the market, but I'd say like 12 to 14% vacancy rates on average, which is quite a bit higher than historical norms. The other difference that I'd probably say is that is actually the reported vacancy. So that's how much is actually sitting there vacant on market. There is something else that, that most folks look at, which is a double click, which is who's subleasing right now also, because that's kind of vacancy, right? There's like people are paying their rent, but ultimately they don't want the space. And that's kind of more of, of availability. And we've seen that really spike. And in some markets, that could be upwards of call it 20, 30, 40% availability. And what we're seeing is when they're trying to sublease the office space that they're doing so at a much lower rent level. So why, what is, what is the fear that people are having? Well, when someone goes to buy, let's say an office building for this podcast, they'll come and they'll say, you know, what is the office building that you want to pick out? You go to buy it and you put some level of debt and then some level of equity, right? So let's say it's a $100 office building. Let's say you have $60 of debt, which is probably the average leverage amount, and then $40 of, of equity on top of that. There are two issues. I would say first one is a cash flow issue. The second one is a maturity issue. So the first cash flow issue being if you have vacancies, you need enough money coming in from the rental payments that are being made to offset the cost of paying interest on that debt. And when those ratios or those dollar amounts get too close because you thought, hey, I have you know the entire building and now half the building is like not paying rent and you're running into issues, that runs into what we call a like debt service coverage ratio covenant issues, which is you can't service the interest payments on the debt. So that's kind of issue one. And then issue two is maturity, which is, Ultimately, you had a $100 building, and it's now worth $70 today because valuations have declined. You have $60 worth of debt. All of a sudden, your debt providers, when you go to refinance, aren't going to give you $60 worth of debt. They're like, what? That doesn't give us enough cushion, right? And so then maybe they'll give you like $40, $50 or whatever worth of debt, but then you have to come up with that gap. You have to put in additional capital. And by the way, you're not really making money because there's been a lot of vacancies and you've barely been able to cover your interest payments. And so this is where we're seeing, you know, some people run into trouble and they're actually ending up being like, you know what, I'm handing back the keys. So there are things that are called like workarounds, which is generally people who will hold the equity in the buildings will go and negotiate with their lenders and try to figure it out. But usually in order to do that, you have to kick in more equity. They want to know that their cushion buys some equity. And so as a result of that, we're seeing some people throw back the keys and that's that's kind of what we're starting to see in the media. Now, pull up. That was very detailed as to what the issue is. Now let's pull up a little bit, which is what do I think the key issues are that we need to be aware of? So of that debt that can become impaired, so there's the equity and the debt. The equity tends to be 
varying. So it's it's kind of a very long tail of people who are sponsors or investors who have bought up office space. But the the debt side of it, the lenders are about 50% banks. And so now banks are seeing this, they're getting nervous. They're like, okay, are they going to be able to refinance this out? So it's like, I think the debt is held in office roughly 50% is banks. And then there's another like 15 to 20%, which is CMBS markets. And then there's a few, there's a bunch of other sources of capital there. And so the, the question of contagion is just like with the banking crisis, there's already pressure on banks' balance sheets. There's concern that now this is going to add another issue to their stability and that this can have ripple effects into therefore other asset classes. And that's kind of the key concern there. Okay, so that's commercial real estate. I'd probably say we haven't hit a major cliff yet, but I think the thing people are watching for is that a lot of people refinance their debt in probably 2020, 2021 when interest rates are low. Most of this debt are three-year terms. You can do the math on that. We're, we're coming up on it. So I think that is what is causing people concern is we're coming up on this debt maturity wall. Um, and even if they demangled stuff for the, the covenant issues to date or renegotiated stuff, that is going to hit a maturity and so that's the key issue that we're seeing in, in CRE. So now I'm going to let me pause there before I head into to single family, because I know I just gave you a lot to probably unpack. And by the way, I want to caveat, I am the least smart person in, in CRE. This is not my area of expertise. It is just some basic, basic overview of what I've seen happen. No, that's great. That is extremely informative. And but that's the as you mentioned, that's the commercial side. DB doesn't touch that side. You live on the other side, which is single family homes. So let's talk a little bit about that because I'm sure you you can go even deeper on the residential side. Yes, but I'm going to try not to bore the audience too much with going into my like double click, which is what I tend to do. So on the single family side, we've actually helped, saw the, the single family residential market hold up extremely well. I was shocked by this. So let's go back in time a little bit. To March 2020, COVID hits, the market has essentially frozen. During that time, I don't know if you remember, but people were so scared of COVID that they did not want to go on home showings because they were scared to show up at a home and potentially risk being exposed to COVID. And so there was probably three months, and I remember I used to watch Showing Time, which was this website that would show you all of the home viewings that were happening. And I remember just like literally went to zero. People were like, we're not even going to leave our house, we're not going to go on home showings. So the market kind of paused. And then what happened is as people got more comfortable with the risks around COVID and they started getting out and buying homes again, what you saw was there was this mass frenzy to move out of a really small apartment building into something with the backyard with more space. And so we actually saw this like insane rocket ship of, of demand for like literally just buying homes, unlike anything we had ever seen. And so the way that this is measured in in real estate, I look at, it's called either months of supply or absorption is the inverse of months of supply. And so what you look at is of the homes that are listed for sale today, how many months would it take for all that inventory to get absorbed? And usually four to five months is kind of where there's a balanced market. And if you look at what that means, just the inverse of that is a 20 to 25% absorption rate. So when you look at what that actually did during COVID is that actually came in so far that in some markets, you were actually closer to like less than one month of supply, 0.8 months of supply, because there's so much demand and there has been so little supply that has been built up. So now you're like, okay, this makes a ton of sense. So why don't we just start building more homes then? Like keep the 
the market balance. And by the way, maybe the, the key thing that the nuance that I should have stated that I didn't state is as monthly supply declines, as absorption rate increases, prices go up. That's what it's correlated to. So monthly supply declines, price goes up, right? It's just supply and demand of the balance between the two. So now fast forward, you're like, okay, why don't you just build more homes? Well, builders did. They started building homes. They had the highest margins that they had in a really long time, but they can't build fast enough. You have to go out, you have to buy land, you have to get permitting and zoning it, and you have to get raw materials. There was like that whole issue. Remember when you like literally couldn't get anything and everyone was just like, yeah, no, can't access, everything's being held up. Like it was the same thing kind of with with home builders. And so even if they did start to build, it was just not enough to offset the level of demand. And so that really created an imbalance in the market. I think what's interesting to think about here is, okay, mass amount of demand, very little supply, there was this very weird market equilibrium. And a lot of times I think what probably should have happened in the market, where was there something that felt, because I believe that markets are pretty efficient, like where should this have equalized? Well, the reality is, is that we should have probably had higher supply. The government stepped in to basically backstop mortgages. So when people lost their job and there was a lot of employment due to COVID, and I think that that is from a social perspective, a really tough thing for any family to have to go through. The government stepped in and they basically said, we will pause your mortgage payments, which was an intervention in in the balance of supply and demand, right? And as a result of this, what we saw is that there probably would have been a bunch of homes that would have gone, would have been foreclosed on, right or wrong, would have been foreclosed on that didn't come to market. And as a result of that, we stayed very supply constrained. We saw home prices spike. And that continued through the summer of 2022, whereas that is when we peaked. And then all of a sudden, the Fed took a very interesting little sharp turn, which is the Fed decided to to raise interest rates. Mortgages tend to correlate a little bit more to the 10-year treasury than to the Fed funds rate. That's what they're usually based on, but it has tracked fairly closely. So let's just use the Fed funds rate as, as a proxy. And so as the Fed funds rates started increasing, so did mortgage rates. And the impact of this is that doesn't impact, it impacts supply somewhat and building costs and things like that, but it's really supposed to dampen demand, right? If your mortgage is now two, three X more expensive, you're paying $2,000 a month, you now need to pay $6,000 a month. They say fewer people are going to actually buy homes. And so what we saw is that demand did dampen, but not by nearly enough. <laughs> and so as a result, we saw prices come down from the peak. But if you actually look at them on a year-over-year basis, January, February of this year, 2023, probably the lowest point in terms of home prices were flat to maybe down 1% year on year. And we're seeing prices now starting to rise again. So single family did not miss a beat, right? It was demand went back a little bit, but ultimately not enough to actually offset the massive loss of supply that we've had over the last decade. And if you look at the actual numbers of existing homes that are out there in the market for single family, we are really far under supply, which is what's causing people to be like, I don't understand mortgage rates are 7%. Why are home prices not going down more? Well, this is the dynamic. And truthfully, I don't think it's a dynamic we can undo quickly, right? Jerome Powell can raise rates really quickly in about six, seven months, right? And you can massive spike in the cost of, of mortgages. We don't undo decades of underbuilding homes in six to seven months. That doesn't happen. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I guess it ties into the role that VV is playing in, in all of this. Let's talk a bit about that. But maybe before you tell us about VV Homes, let's hear a bit about your background. Were you always interested in, in real estate? 
So I wouldn't say I was always interested in real estate per se. I think I was more, I wanted to build something that had an impact that was bigger than anything I could do individually. I wanted to create a ripple effect in the world. And I wanted to do something that I thought helped people, helped families. For my family growing up, I grew up in a, a fairly low income family and my dad couldn't get a mortgage when they were trying to buy my my family's their first house, our first house. And we ended up getting seller financing on the property, which is the only way that you could afford a home. And eventually my dad was able to get a mortgage, refinanced out that seller who we were very grateful for that, but then took cash off the table and then used that to help pay for education for me and my siblings. And when I talk to my family today, it's kind of interesting because I remember my sister and I having a conversation and right around, I want to say it was like the very end of 2020, maybe beginning of 2021. And she goes, interest rates are so low. I just, I went from a 30-year mortgage to a 15-year mortgage to increase my payments that I could pay it down quicker. And I remember being like, are you out of your mind? Mortgage rates are so low. Spread it out. Lock in a 30-year fix. What are you doing? Take that money and put it into the stock market. And she was like, Dina, I don't invest in the stock market. And I was like, what? Just put in the S&P? I don't know. And she was like, you do stuff like that. That's not me. My, my house is my savings. And I remember that conversation because that is exactly how I think most families think about their own source of, of wealth generation. And they're not wrong. Family, like Owning a home is probably one of the best sources of wealth. If you look at, at renters versus homeowners, homeowners have 40 times the net worth versus renters. A house is a great way to save. It appreciates over time. It's generally like up and to the right, especially if you've owned it over the last couple of years. You can get really good leverage and debt against it. And it has dual utility, which is like you can live in it. You can't live in the S&P 500. And so I think it was that idea around the importance of a high serving as the central nucleus and core asset that most families own, which is what got me excited to try to innovate and make it more accessible to other families. So let's zoom in on Divi. What's the innovation here that is driving the growth of the company? Yeah, so the, the innovation was, you know, I kind of looked at the market and at the time when I started Divi, I'd say maybe something like 40 to 50% of Americans could get a mortgage. Today that number is actually about 25%. So the majority of people, 75% of Americans, if they apply today, cannot get a mortgage, right? Based off where interest rates are, based off of the average income that, that Americans make. So people don't talk about the fact that mortgages are actually, I'd say, a very unreachable product. It is a product for the very highest echelon of income earners today in America. Is that 25% a historic low? On, what was the last time it was that low? I haven't gone back and I haven't done the analysis. I'm sure in the 80s when Volcker was like, increase rates up tremendously, maybe it was similarly low. It's definitely, so I'd say it's a combination of underwriting requirements and demographics. So one, I think that people used to pair up, get married, settle down, have dual income and not move a ton. Um, so I'd say one, it is the constant switching of jobs, the side hustle by 1099 income in addition to salary income. It is the I'm taking longer to get married. You know what's actually crazy is the fastest growing segment of mortgages, single women. And it's not because it's a high number. It's not a high number. It is just because it is such a low number <laughs> that the growth rate can actually be so high. But I think it's a testament to like our demographics are changing. I'm not getting married. 
at 22 years old and settling down and having two sources of income and getting a mortgage. No, right? And so a combination of kind of demographics and then where interest rates are going and then the extreme tightening of underwriting requirements, a combination of those two have made it pretty much impossible for, for most folks to actually get a mortgage. Um, so I don't know if this is like historically the lowest percentage, but it's definitely definitely pretty tight. So kind of getting on to Divi and what we do. So I kind of realized that homeownership is inaccessible. I thought, well, this is silly. There's a market that's massive that clearly has a lot of demand. And maybe I can't give folks a mortgage. Maybe I can give them the same utility that they would get from a house. What, what do people want? They want to pick out a house that they want so they can live close to their parents or school or something. Right? They want a backyard. They want to like pick out a house. Right? They want stability, so they want to know that they can stay in that house for an extended period of time. They want clarity on payments, and they want to be able to save in the equity on the home. Those are kind of the characteristics. And I thought, okay, I can do that. I can create those characteristics and not have to take out a mortgage. So we came up with Divi, which for those listeners who who don't, I'll give a very quick summary, which is someone comes to our website, we direct them, we give them a budget. So the same way you get pre-approved for mortgage, you get pre-approved with Divi. We'll say, Miguel, you're approved, go out shopping for a $400,000 home in Dallas, Texas, and you go looking for a property, you find the home. We do not have preset inventory. You are shopping on the MLS, you're shopping with for sale inventory. You go pick out the home, we'll purchase it on your behalf. You, instead of signing a mortgage contract, you sign a lease with an option to purchase. And what that means is that every month when you move in, you make one monthly payment. Uh, it's your rent amount that we've contractually set you to. It's the same way you pay interest on a mortgage, except instead of interest, it's rent. And then every month you can actually go in and you can decide how much you want to save in the house. You can say this month, I want to save $20, this month 200 and you'll actually be buying into the savings of the house. We'll appreciate that money. At any point in time, you can cash out and take your equity less a small relisting fee and walk away. Or you can actually refinance out Divi on, and move on to a mortgage. So it, it acts just like a mortgage, and it's actually more flexible than a mortgage. You can't go to your mortgage provider and say, hey, you know what, JK, this month, I don't want to amortize my mortgage. I just want to pay interest, right? That's not a thing. You sign up to a 30-year mortgage, you're paying that amount. With Divi, like, it's actually completely flexible. You want it to be an interest-only mortgage. Similar to an interest-only mortgage, you don't need to save up every month. You want to actually advertise. We can put you on a plan so that you own that whole house at whatever time period you want. So we're really customizable, and it actually, I think that the key difference is our customers, when they get their home, they're all like, oh, this is a rental. Our customers think about it. They get this home, and it's their home, right? They are ready to live in it. They're ready to invest in it. And the trade that we can make as a business is, hey, I'm giving you this experience, this very almost out of reach luxury product experience, which is like a mortgage, but better. And in exchange for that, I get a renter who thinks, acts, and feels like a homeowner. They don't destroy the home. They really care and they invest in it. I mean, we cover all the costs of maintenance, taxes, and insurance and all that stuff, but they take better care of it. And so the the trade, I think, is, is kind of a win-win, which is like the customer ends up getting the house they want. And they get something that feels like a mortgage, but technically isn't. And Divi gets a better caretaker for the house. I know you love data and, and numbers. How many years ago did you underwrite your first customer? First of all, you're making me sound like a nerd, and I appreciate that. So thank you. I am. I will take that as the best compliment. Yes, I love data and numbers. So our first customer, her name was Teresa. She was in 
I'm going to say maybe November 2017. Yeah. Amazing. So you have almost six years of, of data. What have you learned about, say, you know, graduation rates, for example, uh, the customers that join BV, how many of them graduate into a full mortgage where, you know, you hand over all the documents and they're off the platform versus other insights that you've learned? So when mortgage rates were 2 to 3%, I want our buyback rate to be super high. Why? Because I was like, I can't offer you rent that's 2 to 3%. That's insane. Like the government is literally at all time low interest rates. You should lock that in as soon as we can get you into it. Something interesting has happened in the last six months, which is for the first time in, in a very long time, renting is actually cheaper than a mortgage. Like renting is cheaper than just a mortgage, not including when you own the home, by the way, with the mortgage, you have to include, which I, I'm not even including in this number, but you have to include taxes, maintenance, insurance. Like you got to pay for all that, but you don't have to pay for as a renter. It's a straight rental rate. Rent is now cheaper than a mortgage. By almost 20%, 20, 25%. I mean, and so when asked kind of, you know, are we pushing for access to homeownership? My answer is I am pushing for people to have options so that they can do whatever they want and make the decision that's best for them. I would argue that if it were me right now as a dipping tenant, my response would be, I don't want to move on to a mortgage. Why? So my payment can go up 3X? Why? I get to live in the house. I'm saving up in the equity. And you're more reasonably priced. And so historically, we have really pushed that's the 50% that we want. But I want to change this narrative because I think to your point on, on data and being intellectually honest, there is a time when going into a mortgage is the right answer. It was a couple last five years when we were on historically low interest rates. And there are times when as a capitalist, like a consumer should be more focused on what is the best financial outcome. And look, for some people, they may get a VA loan or something that like actually has bells and whistles that make it the right product and the right fit for them. I don't want to hold them back. Great. We will make every opportunity available to you. But being intellectually honest, I don't know if that is the right North Star for us to have at this particular point in time. And then consumers are pretty smart. So I'm assuming you're seeing that in the data today. So it's interesting because we are seeing it on a cohort by cohort basis. I actually don't know that the cohorts are going to look that that different. They're going to get to a different endpoint. It might take them longer, but I think that they might get to the same same endpoint. I think consumers, I think the idea of being a homeowner is just so core to the American dream. And I think what we need to do is flip the narrative a bit that you can be a homeowner and not have a mortgage. And that's really tricky because I think there's a lot of regulations around that. As soon as you say someone owns a home, right? You're like, well, what happens if they don't make any payments? You're like, well, what happens if you don't make payments on your mortgage? Do you still get to keep the house? So there's a lot of these issues that kind of come up when you start to use wording, I think, that is very regulatorily charged, right? But I want to actually make it very clear, consumers should pick what is the best option financially for them and their families. Um, and what we call being a homeowner today, I would say, is going to evolve in terms of what that definition and that very charged word means, I think, in the future, because you can be a homeowner and not have a mortgage, I think. Now, Adina, I, I kind of grew up all over the place internationally, and I saw there, there are many structures that can lead you to homeownership, some more popular in other countries. Did you draw inspiration from else, somewhere else, 
when you were starting to build Divi? We spent a lot of time looking at the various types of prop tech companies that were out there. Because at the time when I founded Divi, I remember I modeled out what some of the shirt appreciation or HELOC companies were doing. And I didn't think it had the impact I wanted. I thought HELOC only helped people who already had a mortgage. So that wasn't really the target, what I wanted to accomplish in life. I remember thinking shared appreciation was a tough asset to sell, meaning in order to do this, you have to raise a lot of capital. And I thought a non-cash flowing product was going to be tough to raise a lot of capital for. So part of this is like a balance when I was thinking through this. I had to think, hey, what's good for the consumer and what's good for the investor, right? Because I can't get a single home if I don't have buy-in from our investors. I need to find that balance. And so I looked at a couple of those models, but I, I wish I could say I drew more inspiration. I truly, to your point of me being a complete nerd, just locked myself in my apartment, spent way too much time in Excel, like didn't sleep or shower for like a week and just tried to figure out the math of how I can make this work. And speaking of investors that you, you mentioned, it also has to make sense for the investors. Did you struggle at the beginning to convince folks from the investing world or did this just click immediately? I remember our first time we wanted to go buy a house. We were incubated by by Max Levchin. He had a he had an incubator called HVF, and we were kind of brought up in there. And I remember one of our early board meetings. I thought, you know, I just want to raise a fund. Let's keep this asset light. I won't have to use my venture capital dollars to buy this home. I'm going to raise a big fund, and we can put these assets in there, and like I can pitch and tell the whole story. I remember Max looking at me and saying, like, who's going to give you money? <laughs> What have you done? Like, you haven't done anything. Like, go prove it out a little bit more. And I remember I was like, oh, it like clicked. I was like, you're right. Who's going to give me money? So it's really fortunate that we have an amazing seed investor. His name is Ray Thompson. And he said, okay, I will get you a very small amount of capital. I think he was like a couple million, like a debt facility, where he was like, use this to go try it out. And I remember we quickly like used all of it up there. It's like, we did it. We did this. Now. And they're like, okay, now go find real money. And I had to use that as the sample set to then go out and we raised our first, what I consider debt facility from Crossover Bank. And I remember being so thankful. There was a guy named Ray there who worked there a while ago. He's now at a different bank, but he, I remember him helping us. Like, I remember him being like, Adina, do you know what a debt facility is? And I was like, you give me debt and I owe you the money back plus interest. And he's like, let's have a conversation. I'm going to teach you like, this is how you structure this. This is how you have the negotiations. And I am so forever grateful for those people who are willing to put in the time and energy to understand Divi and solve the potential in them. And from that debt facility, we went on and raised another much bigger facility with Goldman Sachs. And then that's since raised it with multiple investment banks and have term loans and a very robust capital structure. And it's taken a long time and it has taken a lot of hard work. A lot of hard work and a lot of trying to figure out People think you, you just go out and sign this and people worry. No, you have to like set up entire infrastructure for this sort of stuff. And you have to report out and you have to make sure you do what you say you're going to do because otherwise no one's ever going to give you any money again. <laughs> and so it's been a lot of work to set this up, but I'm really proud of especially our team because they did it all. How big is your team today? 250, 255 people. And so how do you think they would characterize your leadership style? Do you have any role models? that you look up to? Our executives do like these feedback sessions where we will, during our executive offsets, we also serve where we give each other feedback. And 
And I remember they all kind of align have one piece of feedback for me that kind of sticks in my head and maybe defines my leadership style. They looked at me and they said, Adita, you're the most annoying boss I've ever had. They're like, you just poke and poke, it'll push and I'll do a good job and it's not good enough and you want it better and you push and push and push. And they're like, you may be the most annoying boss we've ever had, but you're the best boss because you push us to accomplish things that we never thought were possible. So if you're asking me my management style, I push insanely hard. I have really high expectations. You'll give me something I'm like, again, better, learn, you know, figure it out smarter. And, and I think that that pushes people to accomplish more in a year, more in six months than they ever thought was actually possible in a job. So I think that they'll say, I'm the best boss they've ever had and probably the most annoying one. And so the combination of those two things, I think, I always think your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. And mine certainly is, which is I have this extreme sense of urgency and persistence. It has allowed me to do wonderful things in my life. And as my husband always says, it also is my most annoying quality. And so you should see, like, he jokes when I get committed to something, I go so deep on it. And and this is down to even like, I mean, like we redid our backyard and I became an expert in landscape architecture. Like I've read every book. I listened to every podcast. I mean, the soil types. I'd be like literally out, like picking up like soil, like checking the density of it to make sure, like I just can't do anything half-ass. Everything has to be 100%. And I think that that is my greatest strength. And I also think it's my greatest weakness. That's okay. And I'm sure there's no doubt that is reflected in the culture of the company. Are there any company cultures that, that you look around and you say, you know, we, we want to be more like that company or you think you're creating your own? I don't think we're smart enough to say that, like, we're doing things that haven't been done before. I think you see things and you take little pieces from here and there and the combination of all of it creates something that is unique. So, for example, we have a really big memo writing culture, which clearly comes from Amazon. I think that, you know, when you're learning something new and someone says something and you kind of don't know what they're saying and you're like, oh yeah, okay. But you like really like, what the fuck are they talking about? Like, what is that? And when you're actually writing out a memo on a subject, when you want to make a decision, those things that seem really confusing, you can gloss over, right? Because you have to write it out. You have to like actually get to the bottom of it or someone will just call you out on it. So I actually think memo writing is really important for memorializing decisions, one, but to pushing you to actually like fully think through it and understand even those little bits that are hard to understand. So we pulled that, I think, from Amazon. I think we have our own version of what I think is like a really high-performing culture. So not the same as what Netflix had, but something where we expect greatness from individuals and we're willing to compensate people extremely well. My view is I want to work with, I would rather work with fewer, better people than more average people. I want people who debate, who push me. We have executive committee, which is kind of our own thing that I actually took this one from TPG. And just where I worked in private equity where we used to do Monday morning investment committee. That's what those funds do. And you would assign like a red team, which is like someone to counter the investment, right? Or the decision. And so we similar like an executive committee, which is like major decisions go through there. And we have a criteria as to what qualifies as a major decision and you have to come and you have to bring a memo. Everyone has to have pre-read it, left comments, and then you debate it out. You have sort of red teams and people pushing and I always think you come out of it. And what's amazing is generally people end up 
either maybe not fully aligning, but understanding if you believe these certain assumptions, we would all logically get to the same conclusion. And some people may have different understand or may have a different perspective on one of those assumptions, but they can understand exactly how we got to the conclusions that we ultimately are getting to. And they can just disagree on that assumption, right? But we agree on the methodology, the framework, the natural conclusion that comes in it. So that's, those are all little parts of our culture. I think we're high accountability, high intellectual curiosity. We are people who, we are not strategy people. Like if, if you want to just do high level strategy, this is not the place to do it. I get into every detail of analyses of spreadsheets. We are all intellectually curious. We're all hungry. Adina, we started the conversation talking about the real estate market. We didn't talk too much about the prop tech market and, and what's going on there. And of course, for those following, we've seen that there's been also a lot of trouble, obviously, because it's completely correlated with the real estate market. Are you, are you worried about the prop tech industry today? What's your view? Yeah, I would say first in talking about the prop tech industry, I want to recognize like people give up their entire lives to start companies, their kids, dinners, their emotional well-being. And so I don't want to take it lightly that I think the prop tech industry is going through a very challenging time. And I don't want to be cavalier about the fact that like there are a lot of people who put in so much of themselves and their energy to create this who are now having to deal with very challenging times that no one really expected. So that's kind of a little upfront, but I will say like kind of been diving into to what's actually happening. The prop tech industry is undergoing challenges. Why? Because in order to buy and sell homes or do most things around the real estate industry, you need a lot of capital. That capital tends to come in the form of debt capital and the cost of debt capital has increased significantly. And so what this means is I buyers who previously bought and sold a home, right? If they now have debt facilities that they didn't fix the interest rate on in some way, either through hedges or through term loans or whatever, which they probably wouldn't do because that well about work for their business. But if they didn't fix the interest rate, what they're seeing is that their number one cost interest expense just quadrupled, right? And so when you're building a company and you're ticking along with your revenues, and all of a sudden your number one cost just like literally spikes right up in a matter of six months, completely. I wouldn't say that we didn't think interest rates were going to rise. I don't think that one thought that they were going to probably rise as quickly as they did. That's really hard. And as a result of that, it put pressure on people's covenants. It put pressure on their liquidity. It put pressure on their unit economics. And a lot of prop tech companies have gone under as a result of that. It took... You know, we used to sound conservative, I think, at Divi when we set up our initial debt facilities because we had a wonderful C- CFO when he put in place all these hedges and everyone was like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I feel really fortunate. Like we weren't 100% hedged. So we had to obviously throw more on, you know, when things started getting a little bit shakier in the market, but we were in a pretty good spot. But I don't think the most tech founders think, what's my hedging strategy when I wake up, right? That's not like a tech founder mindset. Tech founder mindset is more, how do I create a really amazing product that creates a step function change in this industry, right? And so I think what we saw was probably our own as founders, we have to take responsibility for the fact that we maybe took a tech approach instead of fully understanding the capital markets risk that was associated with starting an asset heavy business. But you learn, right? You learn, you change, you adjust. And for those who have made it through, I think we'll come out much stronger. And those who even didn't make it through, I think probably have learned a tremendous amount. And I hope that they will go on to start even more impressive companies. 
when you think about the future of BV and Twinnet on the note about the future, you know, how do you envision the company evolving? What has you the most excited about it? Rents are a massive market. <laughs> it's the largest payment that any consumer makes. So when everyone's like, oh, your subscription service is like, not the biggest subscription service, your housing payment. <laughs> that is it, right? It is massive. And so that is always going to be the crown jewel of our business, right? That is the source of massive TAM, recurring revenue, really good margin profile. However, to me, the customer experience needs to be bigger than that. And so I want to flip it a little bit, which is from a business strategy perspective, we will add on services that will help augment and add different types of revenue stream, right? However, and I think that that's important from a business to strategy perspective. However, the bigger reason to expand into ancillary services is I think the consumer play, which is what is a consumer actually looking for? And this is where my tech side can kind of step in a little bit more, which is ultimately people just want the easy button. They want to start off their journey of ownership and they want to know, hey, I just go on this one platform and they're going to give me fair rent and they're going to give me the best home. And like, let's start off renting. And by the way, they want an instant push notification when they're ready. They're like, hey, actually, I want to maybe start thinking about owning, right? They want to they know that they can then maybe stay in that house or find a new house and roll equity credits. And they want to know when they want a mortgage that it can take two minutes and be quick and easy. And so our job at Divi is to give them that experience, which is the largest investment they will make in their life. For most people, with the absence of like the top 1% of Americans, but for the 99%, it is their home. And they want a complete platform that tells them everything from how to start their first rental to how to buy their last home and everything in between that, including having maybe a credit card that is secured by your equity and your property, reporting out all of your rent. Getting points when you pay your rent credit on this secured credit card that's backed by you know this house. They want it all and they want it to be simple and easy. They only want to deal with one person, one person through the whole thing. And that is the future and that is what Debbie is creating. Well, Adina, thanks for an inspiring conversation. I know that there's no doubt that you are, have been, and, and will continue to inspire future founders and really appreciate you stopping by for a great episode. I'm sure it's going to be extremely well received. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Adina from DV Homes. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and just truly, truly means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off, till next week. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.